Welcome back, everyone. This is the Poor Pearls Almanac, and I am your host, Andy, alongside my two lovely co-hosts. Say hi, fellas. Yeah, my own mother has never used the adjective lovely to describe me. Who the fuck do you think you are? Your mother has called you many things. That's not one of them, correct? All negative connotation. And hi, I'm Matt. Yes. I try to understand Matt's it. always a good team player. Yeah. Well, I started this episode off my nut, so oh, God damn help it. me get back, boys. Help me get back on track. So what nut are we talking about today? So today we are actually wrapping up our final deep dive in the world of nuts. I know, you're all heartbroken. Even I'm a little tired of the nut jokes. But today we're talking about butternuts. Butternuts or nut butter? The man still has jokes. Or is it butternut nut butter? <sighs> so, butternuts, they're a walnut. And uh, arguably the least known nut tree across eastern North America. They're often called the white walnut because, you know, the other one's the black walnut or uh, the oil nut, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. It grows throughout the northeastern United States, down south to Virginia-ish, maybe a little bit further south. It was once a, a very well-known tree and appreciated tree for things like furniture making and carving and boats and obviously the nuts. Uh, but it's mostly been lost to history today. Now, unfortunately, its history is, or its story rather, is pretty similar to the American chestnut. It has also succumbed to a non-native fungus with uh, what's called butternut canker disease. I'm not going to try to pronounce the fungus. I don't know if either of you guys want to take a shot at that, because I can't. Ophionomonia clavigenti juggling desirum. Look at that. That is yeah. not... That's not real. I got close, but I don't think that's it. <laughs> yeah, that was not bad. I-G-I-G, or the V-I-G-I-G in there is not something you see all the time. No. I don't know if it's clavigenti. I don't know what that is. Yeah. So it was first discovered in the 1960s, although it probably was in American forests before that. And uh, it's basically slowly decimated the entire butternut population across the continent oh i just realized we never talked about american chestnut all right yeah i feel like it's such a low-hanging fruit or nut i mean it's like functionally gone and maybe someday we'll cover it just one i don't know about you guys nut. i'm a little one tired of nuts. nuts i'm just glad he said it <laughs> brave man now before we dive into butternut canker uh, and whether or not we can solve that issue I think it's really important to actually look at the butternut and see why it's kind of unique and special. So the butternut is a walnut, so it does have a lot of traits of like the black walnut, and they even overlap in terms of like the landscape. The butternut tends to have a slightly further north range and doesn't really extend as far south. So the range has expanded basically from like southern Canada out to Minnesota, down to like Arkansas and the Ozarks, and then like the very northern tip of Georgia. So like when you get in, once you start leaving the Appalachia region, it kind of dissipates. Despite this, they're often found in the same environments because it's a walnut and enjoys that like more moist and rich soil. Although the butternut does thrive better on rockier, drier soils than the black walnut. So that's like a nice little teaser of what else it has to offer. Their northerly range being in Canada makes them one of the hardiest walnuts. And uh, it's been reported surviving negative 40 Fahrenheit, which is too cold for me so good for them and obviously it's a walnut so it does have like the juggalone issue which we talked about 
I don't know, eight episodes back. And the flavor is not quite the same as a black walnut. It's a little bit kind of like a pine nut, which, you know, I'll take it. Okay. So wrapping that up into layman's terms, that's that's what I do. You're telling me the white walnuts are in the north while the black walnuts are in the south. So this story is inherently American and we don't even need the American chestnut. But also it's Italian because if it tastes close to pine nuts, that brings me to butternut pesto. So now we're both interested, Andy. Look. I've said it once, I'll say it again. Native crops, top chef. It's we can't lose. Elliot set up the cameras. It's mm-hmm. his kitchen. Those secret ingredients would fuck chefs up. <laughs> now, the butternuts are uh, considerably smaller trees than the black walnuts, and uh, they tend to grow much faster. It's one of the few nut trees, other than like the hazelnuts and to an extent, the chinkapins that would be considered like an early succession species, uh, which also mirrors, again, that American chestnut because it had once been considered an early succession species that had a very long life. So it would be alive and huge in older forests. Now, historically, butternuts exist in um, mixed hardwood forests as like a scattered individual trees. Again, similar to black walnuts and chinkapins, where there's maybe a couple for every acre of forest. Of course, there's exceptions to that, and we're going to talk about that. Yeah, we've talked about it before, so let me guess. It's like disjunct scatterplot populations. So actually not disjunct this time, but you're coming after the same thing. While butternuts and black walnuts are the two walnuts native to North America, they're not part of the same taxonomic sections of walnut. Butternut is part of the trachycarian section and is the only member. Butternut is genetically separate enough from the black walnut that it doesn't hybridize, which is why I'm bringing this up. And then also it does hybridize hybridize with the section cardiocarion, which includes Japanese walnuts, but also dioscarion, which includes English walnuts. I know this sounds pointless and kind of meandering, but it's really important for understanding what happens to the butternut going into the 20th century and the 21st century. This is really important. Now, despite the fact that it doesn't hybridize with black walnut, you can use the black walnut as rootstock for butternut cultivars, which is, you know, kind of cool. Yeah, and just like Andy to bring the history into the present, making the black walnut do all the heavy lifting for the white walnut. How huh? about that? I mean, not me personally. Just like a walnut. Wow, just throwing me under the bus like that. You gonna crack? I mean, yeah, I guess that's kind of appropriate. Uh, But actually, fun fact, butternuts should not be driven over like black walnuts to remove the husks. We're going to get there in a minute. So first, let's talk about the trees themselves. How productive are they? Now, butternuts typically don't produce like a ton of nuts, and they don't even really produce a meaningful amount of nuts until they're about 20 years old. And their peak production, unlike other nut trees that take a long time to develop, is only from 30 to 60 years versus like a lot of other, say, like oaks. Their peak production is like multiple hundreds of years. So like this is a very slow start to have a short window. While they do produce fewer nuts, they are considered, like I've kind of pointed to at this point, to be like higher quality nuts than black walnuts. Uh, And they've actually been used more similarly to like a hickory as opposed to a black walnut. If you guys remember, we talked about like boiling for like oil extraction and then like crushing and getting the powder, all that fun stuff. Uh, So that's how they processed these historically. The trees are also tapped for syrup, similar to like black walnut syrup or maple syrup, 
but uh, don't do that now because of our butternut canker. Because mm-hmm. now you're opening up a spot for that to get in there. So like, please, if you do have a uh, pure butternut, don't tap it for syrup. But then also like the black walnuts, you can take the shells and like use it as like a dye. Or like a wood stain. Sure. Because I was looking at black walnut for floor staining a while back and it looks pretty good. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really impressive how like the shitty stain on your hand actually looks good on something else. Uh, I have no idea about butternuts, though. Historically, the use of butternut is pretty interesting. But before we get there, commercial. Hey there, it's me, Crazy Norm, down at Normal Norm's Nut Emporium on John Brown Drive. We're going nuts for nuts in nutty November. We've got big nuts, small nuts, chestnuts, ground nuts, nut butter, buttery nuts, nut milk, milky nuts, nut cream, creamy nuts, and the for the late night crowd, chocolate covered CBD, deep fried nuts. Want to join the nut extravaganza? Nut up and join the nut posse. Join other members and get your sack of nuts pounded for free whenever you come in and make the creamiest nut milk you've ever had in your own kitchen. Crazy Norm's Nut Emporium, 420 John Brown Drive or online at fourprolls.com. So here we go with Andy and his bold, self-proclaimed, interesting facts. You guys love the history stuff. I like the history stuff. No, I'm just fucking with you. The history and the cooking always are the best parts for me because I love cooking and more importantly, eating. Yeah. And honestly, the history stuff is very interesting as long as we're not starting back at like the last ice age. (laughs) Scrat. Our BFF Scrat. Um, we should make t-shirts of Scrat. Mm. He did the first nut episode on the podcast. Scrat yeah. Norm, want, BFFLs. We, yeah, we do need a good... Um, I think we could do a Scrat sticker. A great stack. St- <clears throat> scrat sticker campaign. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a Scrat pack of stickers? Oh my god, there it is. Okay, let's get into this story, though. So, uh, we're gonna go back in time. Not to Scrat's time, but we're gonna... Go a little back. So the Iroquois are believed to have um, increased butternut populations based on pollen records between like 6,000 and 4,500 years ago uh, along a lot of the, the north, what modern day like northern New York. Now, this explains a bit of why when we did the Black Walnut episode, they never got like any meaningful traction in much of the East Coast as a, a food crop. I don't know if you guys remember, it was only fairly recently within the like last 800 years that black walnut started showing up in like pollen records and things like that. Well, this is why, because they had the butternut. Now, like I said, the butternut can be used for like crushing and boiling the nuts. A lot of the stuff that they scraped off that protein was actually used as like a baby food. They had the oil off of it. Uh, the liquid made like a, a nut milk, much like what they did with hickories. A lot of times they would mix it with maple syrup and use it for like flavoring bread cakes and corn soup and things like that. I mean, a maple-flavored nut milk does sound pretty good. And butternuts also kind of stand out because they also have, uh, surprisingly, the highest protein percentage at about 30% of the per calorie is protein. And that's above hazelnuts, which we had talked about a few episodes back as being the highest at 25, and uh, venison being at 22. So, like, yeah, that's pretty high. It is, and I just know our vegan listeners are going to use that as one up. Mm-hmm. Seriously, we're all going to be living on uh, buttered pancakes soon. Or my nut protein powder that's going to get an upgrade. Yeah, right? I, I would also like the the pancakes, though. Butternut pancakes sounds pretty good mm. with bananas. Mm. And maple syrup, obviously. Or black wall. Oh, what were you saying? What was the other one that 
black walnuts can make the syrup too. Yeah, black walnut syrup. You could do butternut walnut butternut walnut syrup on your butternut pancakes, or you you run the gamut and you have butternut acorn pancakes with maple syrup and hickory yeah. milk creamer for your Damn. coffee. Hit all of the nuts be... in one meal. <laughs> you ain't kidding. No, you see, that's it's like the bukkake of native tree crops. It was something see, nice. That's, I, I, I was going to say it, and, but yeah, he beat me to it. Uh, we yes. should have just cut it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyways, the butternuts are high in fat, low in carbs. So like your keto diet, perfect food right here, basically. Historically, they've been considered like a minor crop for indigenous groups. But there have been some examples where it's been a, a bigger staple. So, for example, in southern Ontario, butternut shells were the vast majority of nutshells that were found in excavations with, in this example, 222 grams of butternut shells in comparison to 11 grams of acorns and even fewer of other crops that are, you know, considered to be staples like hickory. So that's, you know, a decent amount. Listen, okay, I know I'm not the math guy on the show, but that seems like more than just a that's like basically all of them yeah that site was uh particularly high i mean somehow i don't know if we've ever talked about white walnuts or butternuts on the show or in any of the other episodes it's never come up yeah we we've mostly ignored it not because it was not interesting but we we've talked about it a little bit in one episode but for the most part it doesn't it it's mostly a non-existent tree on the landscape for native trees at this point. And as we've pointed out, with the exception of a couple sites, it really never showed up in any like meaningful amounts on any historical data. So it's kind of always played like kind of been on the margin. But jumping in and starting to look at this, it's it actually has a, a lot of interesting insights that we can start to unpack. It was really actually only very recently that we had the technology to separate the pollen of black walnut and butternut. And um, because these are very isolated sites with super high amounts of butternut, it's worth also being aware and considerate that these might just be like seasonal spots where they came to harvest the butternuts and move on. Damn, I want a butternut seasonal vacation spot. Me too, but, you know, hold the blight, please. Yeah, minus canker for sure. Minus canker. Get that Airbnb. It's that air butternut and butternut. What, you guys didn't know that? Come on, Andy, that's bad. Yeah, I feel like that place would have to be haunted because they don't exist. They're like ghost trees now. You ever stayed in a haunted Airbnb? I want to. It sounds... Is that an option? Like, can you choose that? I mean, it depends. If you want it, you have to pay extra. But if you don't, you get a refund. So if I tell them I don't want it, but I'm open to it for a discount. Yeah, man. I should have been a lawyer. I don't. I don't know how any of this works, but I'll figure it out. <laughs> like cut, cut to Andy, like trying to talk his way into a uh, into a discount at uh, Best Western. Hell yeah! Listen, I know I... somebody died here, man. <laughs> Bust out the archaeological records. Yeah, at most Best Westerns, yes, you can see the stand on the floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I mentioned that you know, these could be seasonal spots. But there's also like testimonials from colonists as they uh, showed up on the new in the new world, highlighting like the fact that butternuts were like a meaningful part of the landscape. So, for example, one particular person that was traveling through New York commented on the Niagara River watershed that there were great quantities of butternuts and walnuts in a nice stream. So that walnuts piece they called hickories walnuts. So he's commenting that there's butternuts and hickories along a stream. 
Now, these areas, like I kind of hinted before, have extremely high percentages of butternut shell when we look back at the past. And for most of these sites like this, 60% or more of the remaining shells are butternut. And that's also been documented in places like the Susquehanna Valley. Because of the rarity of these sites that show significant use of butternuts, it was clearly recognized that even if it was a very seasonal travel-to type food, the Iroquois were very aware of its value as a food source and probably maximized it through setting them up as like orchards. So that's near or in the same region where the Ozark chinkapins were found way up north, right? And the sand hickory? Correct. See, I was listening. You guys didn't think I was listening. Yeah. I know you're listening, Elliot. I mean, the Haudenosaunee were not fucking around when they got their uh, nut crops going. No, they were not. Their, their tree crop game, A+. Now, what's fascinating about the butternut in particular is that the butternut, based on various sites, actually remained the most popular nut across various periods, like temporally, historically. While the black walnut, like we said, came very late, the oak was an early species, the hazelnut was an early species, and they kind of came and went with popularity. Sites that had high butternut populations basically maintained high butternut populations through the early, middle, and late woodland periods. And I mean, we're talking about thousands of years, not just a couple hundred. That's like when we consider that the butternut walnut tree only lives for like a hundred years, you're talking dozens of generations. Evidence of groves in like the Mohawk River Valley suggests that these weren't just planted, but also maintained by the Iroquois purposefully. And, um, they continued to value it as a crop above most, if not all others, or they would have removed them at some point over those thousands of years. Okay, so you said the butternut was an early succession like uh, tree in the forest time frame. So it's typically not around for a long time without some help? Yeah, these trees typically only lived for like 100 years, and that was before the canker arrived. So 30 generations of breeding for the butternuts we have today. I mean, I'd be curious to know, like, how much management has caused them to evolve. So what's really interesting about that particular comment is that genetically speaking, the northern butternuts actually have less genetic diversity than the southern butternuts, which seems to be like a common trend among like a lot of native crops like persimmons also have that same issue where there's like a northern and a southern, basically speaking. And uh, we're going to be talking about that a, a bit next season. And in case anybody's wondering why I don't write a whole lot of the episodes, it's because Andy writes whole seasons. You'll be hearing from me in around 2027, 20, 28. Mm-hmm. He's going to have so much content. He's just waiting. No, it'll be like three episodes. We'll do 45 minutes. And uh, then I'm just going to talk about weed and guns because that's all I really know. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a. Uh, I'm I'm going to be there for those episodes. <laughs> Matt, yes, <laughs> I'll sign in early. <laughs> Now, much like we discussed in our other nut pieces, sites with high amounts of butternuts also had our favorite large subterranean storage pits where butternuts were likely stored over years, again, because masting patterns with like large crops every three years. And this brings us to my favorite part, the question of caloric return for processing. Oh, great. Before we go on, I just think we should have a, um, a sound effect for subterranean storage pits. Whenever that's mentioned. <laughs> Substrated storage pits, 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 pits. We're going to open this pit up. <laughs> Just a whole bunch of like WWF like 90s clips. I'm ready for nut math time. Let's Are your okay. kids ready for nut math time? I'm a, I only in. want 
I only want nut math time. That's all Count I need in up. life. Count me off. So the acorn episode, <laughs> we had a breakout graph for like a bunch of different nuts. Obviously, listening to this, you don't know that. But if you read the Substack piece on it, you would maybe remember it. We put out a lot of stuff on Substack, on Substack, so you probably don't remember it. I do because this is what I do. However, the reason I'm bringing this up is because in the list, it had a, a number of different nuts, and it did include butternuts. And it placed butternuts at 247 calories per hour for harvesting and processing, which, if you recall, would make it lower than every other tree crop with the exception of hickories if they didn't make milk out of them. Now, here's the thing. That 247 is based on if they're eating the nuts and not boiling them, which we know they are. So I, the people who did that study clearly didn't know that at the time. While with different hickories, the main difference in caloric return is basically based on how bitter the nut is and how long it takes to boil whatever stuff off that they were trying to boil off. Butternuts don't have those same issues, so the figure is likely around the hickory and within that range of around 4,000 calories per hour through boiling. Ooh. And uh, given its high protein and fat content, it likely produces more oil and a higher quality calorie because, you know, protein protein calories are important, more important than any other calorie now in comparison to the hickory nut. And uh, because of that, it does produce probably more protein content per hour than any other nut in the United States, possibly more and probably more than any other food in at least Eastern North America. So you're telling me I need to sell my hazelnut trees that I just ordered on, on your advice, and I need to find some butternuts, some ancient ghost, ghost tree butternuts? I mean, you should know better than to listen to me at this point. You've been around me long enough to know that's a bad idea. So that's on I've you. Lost, I've lost thousands, and you're an accountant. That's why I don't invest in the things I say. I, I'll just tell you to. Elliot, don't take it personally. He loses all his clients' thousands. <laughs> it's not you. It's everyone. Uh, it's criminal. <laughs> so first off, it might be a little bit too warm where you are in Georgia for these bad boys, but let's take a quick break, and then we're going to come back to talk about the butternut canker. Woo! Hey, we're taking a quick break in the episode to remind you that you can get a whole lot more information from poorproles.com. On our website, we have access to our supplemental reader for the podcast, which provides more depth and context, as well as thorough citations for all of the stuff we talk about in the show. You can also sign up for our newsletter, which updates you about limited releases, such as various nursery stock that we sometimes sell through the Poor Proles website, as well as updates about new merch that we have. You can also support the show through that website, poorproles.com, where you have access to our Patreon and our Substack to get early releases for articles and episodes. Now, if you enjoy the show and are just looking for even more audio content, go check out Tomorrow Today, which just wrapped up season one, or tune into the Gastropocene, which is a project of myself and Dr. Aisha Khan to discuss the way our diets have driven the Anthropocene and what it looks like to use our diets for good. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. Now, butternut canker was first reported in Wisconsin in 1967. So it hasn't been around that long, not as long as the American chestnut blight. But like I said at the very beginning of this, it was probably in North American forests for decades. We just didn't know it was there. Uh, now, the fungus that's responsible for the disease spreads primarily by what's called rain splash, which is exactly what it sounds like. There's probably evidence that uh, insects and birds can also be vectors, which would like explain how it travels beyond like 
a grove or something like that. Now, the cankers primarily occur at the base of the tree and eventually girdle and kill the tree rather quickly. Like I said, this was never a really common tree on the landscape, except in those orchards that are managed by indigenous people. But the past seven decades have put this tree on like a very severe decline. So for context, from 1966 to 1986, there was a 77% reduction in butternut trees. Damn. Some states reported 80% losses. And like that sucks. You just lost four out of five trees. However, from 1980s to 2015, that population dropped again by 58%. So now you're down to about 10% of the population of 55, 60 years ago. Not great. And at this point, at least 10 states have listed it as a, a species of special concern, threatened, or vulnerable. Damn, that is, uh, that's disheartening as fuck. It is. It's not a great sign, and it explains why there's not that many butternut trees around now, because I was kind of curious, and you just told me. Oh, yeah, it's, it's not great. The infection itself, like, at first, is a slow process. The canidia gets access into the trees through branches in the lower crown, often because these have some weaknesses from leaf scars, from wounds, cracks, you know, just the fact that they usually don't carry leaves as the tree gets bigger, especially in like a dense forest. Those spots become cankers that are on the infected twigs. The fruiting bodies of the fungus end up rupturing underneath the bark of the branches and snap the branches open, basically. And as the rain hits the branches during the summer, winter, fall, whatever, that drips down and takes it right down to the, the collar of the, um, the trunk. And the same thing happens right there. And they just continue to grow into the, to the trunk. And then the fungus comes out and just snaps the bark open, basically. And then the tree dies. So basically, it rains death down on itself. Yeah, that's metal as shit. It's fucking tree Reaganomics, the trickle down effect. Oof. I don't trickle love that. Trickle down of death. It's quite literally trickle down death economics. Yeah, fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. Uh, so earlier, we had, I had brought up the point of like the, how the butternut hybridizes with Japanese and English walnuts, right? The reason I brought that up is because the butternut can breed and create viable seed with the English walnut, but their offspring won't produce much fruit. So it basically kind of you know, dies, dies out after a couple generations. Now, the Japanese heart nuts hybridize very easily with the butternut, and specifically the Japanese uh, walnut called the heart nut, which is their um, like horticultural variety, improved variety, is often used to create what's called the bwart, or sometimes the Butter Japs and uh, the Bwart Nuts. Oh, man. Butter Japs just sounds like a slur. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a pretty rough cultivar name. Yeah, it's one of those things in the right context, it absolutely is a slur. Like, there's no way it's not. Mm -hmm. in, the, in the right context from the wrong people, yeah, it 100% yeah. <laughs> is. Yeah. Um, the nuts that are produced from the, we'll call it the Bwart, because that's usually what people use it. I refer to it as. Um, Makes sense. The, the nuts produced from the boar are very similar to the butternut, and the hybrids are like almost impossible to tell the difference. We're going to talk about that in a, a couple of minutes. Now, unlike those English hybrids, the boar does produce a ton of fruit, and it can cross with other hybrids, both parental species, and uh, there's even evidence that it might even self-pollinate. Yeah, and if nobody's named a variety boar Simpson, Andy's going to call dibs on that. I mean, when the PPA orchards are up and running, I think we have our first one. 
Bort Simpson. Simpson. Damn, you are right. I mean, we got Dibs. the oaks. We're gonna have to come up with something good for those too. Well, mm-hmm. the winner will have to come up with something good, uh, which we will announce at some point in the near future. Anyways, for folks that are familiar with the story and the breeding work being done with the American chestnut, this whole thing with the Japanese should sound very familiar. The implication of these hybrids are obvious that we may make the native butternut extinct as it's outcompeted by these very effective and ag- I don't want to say aggressive, but very successful hybrids. But like also, you're, it's a double-edged sword, right? The, the hybrids might be the only way to save the butternut given all the other ecological challenges we face. It's not just this one tree. It's literally everything, you know, climate change, ecological deficit, destruction, invasives, poison soil, destroyed ecosystem. I mean, you can go through the list. Like we can't, if all those other things weren't happening, we could probably save the butternut as is, but maybe we can't because we have all these other things happening at the same time. As DNA markers are being better understood and documented for the butternut, we're developing better tools to like identify these hybrids from the native pure butternut. Because of the success of the Japanese walnuts and their uh, descendant hybrids, in some places in the country, they're actually considered invasives now because of how aggressive they've been at succeeding and, and replacing a lot of those native butternuts. Japanese walnuts also hybridize with black walnuts, and uh, that eventually could begin to impact the long-term viability of the black walnuts' native genetics, even though we didn't get to talk about that when we were talking about the black walnuts. So one of the things some breeders are doing that have worked with the Bort is to actually reduce the amount of heartnut genetics in these hybrids by back-crossing them, both with the Bort and the butternut again, uh, which now they're calling the the butter Borts, uh, which can be even more difficult to identify. I can't believe it's not butterbort. Or it is. Look, we don't know. We're just trying to bring... Nobody knows. We're trying to bring it from the past into the present and possibly send it into the future. All right? So identifying trees with seed worth propagating can be like a really intimidating process given how difficult these can be to identify. Michael Ostry, who's arguably the world's foremost expert on butternut, suggests that the trees that are worth sourcing seed from should show more than 70% live crown and less than 20% of the combined circumference of the trunk and the root flares are affected by cankers, and that all trees with at least 50% live crown and no cankers on the the trunk or the root flares, those are the ones that we should uh, take those seeds from. He also recommends when evaluating to consider only limbs in the upper and outer portion of the crown, because as people might know, a lot of times interior and lower branches die from shading. But also the like lower branches, right, are more susceptible to this fungus. Yeah. Because um, it's like dripping down. Yeah, so like that usually be a good indicator of if it's an early stage within the having that fungus, the butternut canker. If we're trying to identify trees for seed, the goal, I don't think, is to find trees that haven't been exposed to canker because we want to see ones that show resistance to it, right? Got it. So it's important to understand that the reason that butternuts can thrive at these really sparse populations, which is why if you go on like iNaturalist, you're not going to find many. I I did a quick look uh, a couple days ago, and there's like two butternuts within 20 miles of me that have been identified. And... Just looking at the pictures, one of them I know for sure is a hybrid. The other one didn't have good enough pictures to tell. Uh, And that's just like going to come with the territory. There's just not going to be many of them. But the reason that they can survive like this is because 
they can pollinate across huge distances. So like you can have a very small butternut population and still have like immense genetic diversity because that pollen can travel up to a mile or so. Damn. It also points to like the challenges of attempting to control the spread of hybrids given that they've been here now for decades. So that's like an issue. So that said, finding clusters of like forest grown butternut that are not near any place that used to be homes, like farms or homesteads or whatever, that's where you're going to most likely find like pure butternut seeds. Very similar to like red mulberries. They're almost impossible to find native mulberries in the United States until you get really far away from where people live. And that's where they tend to stay, at least as pure as we can tell. Now, like black walnuts, the best way to gather seeds is when half the fruit has fallen off the tree. So like shake the tree if you can to loosen up fruits that are up there. That'll reduce the risk of like having weevil infested nuts because the tree will drop those or the weevils will get into the nuts when they hit the ground and they've been sitting there for a while. You know, you can do the whole Elliot and I were watching um, the pecan shaking video where you shake the trees like a fucking the 60s workout thing. Get one of those bad boys, shake a tree. That'll help you uh, get some good good nuts to work with, some good butternuts, and hopefully keep them weevil-free and try to generate another generation. Weevil-free since 2003, as they say. <laughs> I'm just thinking about all the zombie movies I've ever seen and everything you just explained about the population and how they find you know, the cure. It, it works for nut trees, too. True. So Elliot's saying the cure is out there. You just have to find it. Yeah, it's like 28 Days Later, but with trees. That's a movie idea. I would love to watch what, a zombie what, tree I, movie. I, I want you to explain that in more in more detail, because now I'm curious. Right now? Yeah, give me give me this, the pitch. Let's do this. Okay, so it's like the movie The Happening, which is about the trees murdering people. And then we got to get- I haven't seen the, that. The zombies, it's M. Night Shyamalan. It's a terrible movie. It's <laughs> great for the first hour, and then he just doesn't know how to end his shit. He's just not a good writer. <laughs> Shots fired. Yeah, yeah. Quote me on it. Yeah, tell McCallie. We'll talk about it. Um, but yeah, that's our bumper sticker. Movies, there's all the M. zombie Night movies. Call Elliot. Call him. Tell McCall Elliot. In all the zombie movies, there's always a small population that survives and they don't get infected. And that's like basically what you're trying to narrow down with the butternut trees. Is they do have like a little bit of the infection, or they have it in them, but they're not. And they can fight it. it off. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. That's literally all the zombie. But that's all it is. So I'm just saying it's like that with trees. That's that's just my dumb brain trying to make it relate to something that I know. No, that is 100% accurate. That is what we're trying mm -hmm. to do. And then we have to breed from those people because they have the pure genetics. Here we go. There we go. Uh, all right. So to that point, uh, there are butternuts that have shown resistance to canker and um, the seeds have been harvested to propagate those particular trees. Now, these trees, based on analysis done by researchers, tend to be trees that are in open areas or are dominant trees within the forest. So that probably has to do with like airflow and all that good stuff, right? Further, one of the other things that seems to be really important is cooler climates. Trees in cooler climates, like the ones in Canada, tend to show stronger resistance to canker, giving us an idea of what will best protect these trees in the future. Or like when we talked about the bees and like the pressure from mites, remember we talked about like there's different ways you can like reduce pressure to help them acclimate and develop those skills. Mm -hmm. The same thing, like you want you want to like, if possible, reduce selection pressure enough so that there's more genetics to keep it going for multiple generations so you don't thin that genetic pool too much, right? Uh, and that's where it's important to think about like what we can do to help the trees that might not otherwise survive. 
Now, another factor that has been shown to determine the likelihood of survival is to keep these trees on drier sites away from those traditionally like wetter regions where they've historically existed. Regardless of all that stuff, what's really important to understand when we're talking about this, like to contextualize it, the rates of infection are over 90%, meaning that finding a fully native butternut without canker is basically not going to happen. It's extremely, extremely rare. You're talking about a tree that's rare to see, that 90% of the ones that you do see uh, have canker. And the further south you get, the longer that canker has been out there. So basically every tree, when you start going south, has canker. It's only really the ones up in Canada at this point that are still kind of staying outside of that canker zone. The Forest Gene Conservation Association in Canada has been working to graft and plant these resistant trees uh, across Ontario, and uh, they're actively being monitored for canker infection. Now, some of these grafts have already produced nuts, so that means we have some that are in second generation that are being planted in orchards, being monitored and, you know, doing their thing. So there is hope, and we are able to sort of track this genetic, you know, pure bloodline. Yes, the chosen child. This sounds like a pretty good, like, second act of 28 years later. The Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Matt, you know, I'm glad you're on board. I know I don't have to say this, but I have not seen that. Yeah, you got to watch it. It's a great zombie movie. Or if we were doing the beginning of this episode, it'd be like 28,000 years later. Yes. <laughs> great prequel. That's how it starts. <laughs> M. Night Shyamalan, wait, wait, wait. call you- me. You mean because somehow you keep getting movies made, and I just need one. <laughs> the trequel, first off. Oh, god damn it! Yeah, you're welcome. I'm, I I will drive <laughs> a, a, eleven hundred miles just to beat that ass, Andy. <laughs> you get tree- one more for this episode. <laughs> one more. All right, I'm gonna save it. The trequel uh, make it good works for both the prequel, sequel, and then it would be on to the trilogy. The trilogy. Trilogy. <laughs> yes. Oh. But- Matt you're, Matt, you're just a little further north, all right? Mm-hmm. I'm warning you guys. <laughs> yes. I was trying to do something for like Quercus for the quad, but I couldn't mm-hmm. I couldn't put it together that quick. Boys, let's finish the episode. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I got distracted by puns. Uh, you should know this about me. You can't say puns near me. It's just all over. Now, in 2019, geneticists from the United States and Canada decided this was a really important thing that they had to actually work across national borders, figure this shit out. Uh, they met at Purdue University to discuss uh, resistance breeding for the butternut. From this effort, there was a, a breeding plan that was put together, and uh, they decided to do the this idea of like a hybrid that's back-crossed to confirmed butternuts to back cross to hybrid trees. And the idea is basically what they've been trying to do with the American chestnut, not the GMO stuff, but the other back crossing projects. This has created one uh, selection that has greater than for um, the American chestnut, a tree that has greater than 90% genetics from the American chestnut, 10% from I don't know if it's Chinese or Japanese, but probably a mixed. Uh, but that, this is basically what they're trying to do now with the butternut. Now, this breeding plan would protect the maternal lineages in the short term and theoretically it would at least bias time until other advances are made to help researchers create a new plan. So it's just like buying time plus, you know, getting a tree that's 90% native butternut. Purdue is kind of the one stop shop for the butternut uh, from like an academic 
perspective. Uh, they put out an ID guide for native butternuts that's really good. We linked it in the Substack article. We'll probably link it in the show notes. You can also go to agroecologies.org to grab that. But it's a really good resource if you're like, hey, I've got a butternut. Is this a hybrid or not? Listeners, go check out agroecologies.org. It's a very nice place to go learn some very nice things. Oh, thank you. Sound more motivated here. <laughs> I'm trying to get sources for my nut protein powder. Are they using these nuts? Can I source my nut, my butternuts from them and have like an exclusive protein powder from Purdue? I doubt so. Uh, they're, they're basically planting out everything and cutting down anything that has bad canker. So anything that sucks, so they're cutting down. Them? Yeah. They're cutting down and the stuff that's good, they're planting out. So I don't think you're getting on those. All right. So I'm looking at the black market butternuts. That's black okay. Market that's butternuts. All, you, that's yeah. all you had to tell me. I'm, okay. I'm there. Just right. sneaking into the Purdue labs, taking <laughs> ye- like decades of research, making them into protein powder. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. You're like, oh, you broke into Purdue, the chicken place for protein? Mm-hmm. Nah. <laughs> Purdue labs for butternuts. No. Um, yeah. At this point, we've... Um, that's pretty much everything I wanted to cover on butternuts. This is the end of our deep dive episodes on nut trees of North America. Holy we shit. We made it, everyone. We survived. We survived. It's been a blast. I've learned a ton. I'm sure you guys have learned a ton. Yeah. I- I'm excited to move on to the next subject. We're going to be uh, talking about the history of permanent agriculture in the United States, which I'm quite excited about. Oh, yeah. Of course you are. I, I'm just tired. Get I'm. I got real tired of being told I'm an idiot because I found uh, a chestnut in the woods. I was on a hike, and I was like, "Oh my god, I think this is an American chestnut." And Andy was like, "Elliot, you're dumb. <laughs> it's not an American chestnut. It's a what, what was it? it was a, a, horse, horse a horse chestnut? Yeah, yeah. Not and edible. Called me a stupid idiot, but you know, it was all new to me. I didn't know. Not edible, but fun to throw at people. Yeah, good for soap. Mm. Soppinins. Yeah, there you go. S- sudsy fuckers. So you're excited about permaculture? We're going to shit on is this is this the permanent agriculture or is this permaculture that we're going to make fun of? Yeah, so we're going to be we're actually not making fun of permanent agriculture, but we are going to eventually make fun of permaculture. I know, uh, that's what I was saying. That's so, the difference. Permanent uh, agriculture good. Yeah, per, so we're going to get there. Permaculture we got, bad. We got a long time. We got like 18 episodes that I'm going to start from the 1800s and work our way through. We're going to talk about Organics, uh, not the ice biodynamics. Age. We're going to talk well about fucking <laughs> bunch of frigid Rodale old white folks running his, around ruling the country. Rodale and his fucking weirdo chair where he was getting electromagnetism from the earth. Can you believe this fucking guy. He's still going. Yeah. We got 18 episodes of this. Oh, We're going to be God. going hard on this shit. It's going to be a blast. I need to stock up on some more Advil. You should. Also, you rambling bastard. Ooh, baby, I like it raw. Ooh, baby, I like it raw. Wu-Tang!